one of the principles of my philanthropy is bring people together around a common project, which has a beginning, a middle, an end, clearly defined results, because by working together, that's when stuff really happens. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andreas Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff Fenn's former board chair, Georgette Bennett, whose book, Thou Shall Not Stand Idly By, came out on September 28th. In Thou Shall Not Stand Idly By, Georgette shares how she managed to forge a series of partnerships that enabled Syrians and Israelis, Jews and Muslims, to alleviate the suffering of Syrian refugees. She also credits JFN for helping bring a coalition together with other funders to help in this work. Thou Shall Not Stand Idly By, which is distributed by Simon & Schuster, can be purchased on Amazon.com and all other major booksellers. It is a fascinating read. Georgette's accomplishments are too numerous to list here, but they include founding the Multiface Alliance for Syrian Refugees and the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding. She also serves as a trustee of numerous foundations and organizations, including the Global Covenant Partners and the International Rescue Committee. In our conversation, we talked about her experiences growing up as a child of refugees and her varied career as a sociology professor, journalist, and philanthropist. We also talked about philanthropic strategy and the importance of bringing different people together for shared actions, not just for dialogue. Take a listen. So, Georgette, thank you for being with us and talking about your philanthropic journey, which is fascinating, I have to say. And maybe you can start by telling us how the journey starts. Well, the journey starts with displacement. The journey starts with the Holocaust, but it actually begins before then. It actually begins before it was born, because the story of displacement begins with my grandparents' generation. My mother was born in Transylvania at a time that it belonged to Hungary, but shortly after the First World War, it became part of Romania because the Austro-Hungarian Empire was broken up. Part of those people that went to different countries without ever leaving their village. That's right. That's right. So when my mother was an infant, her parents and her two siblings were refugees. They left Transylvania and ended up in Chopron, which is a beautiful medieval town that is in Hungary, but very close to the Austrian border. So that's where my mother's story begins. I was born right after the Holocaust in 1946. I was born in a bombed out apartment building. There was almost nothing to eat. In fact, the odds of my having been born were almost nil. 
because not only was I born to a Jewish family, but my mother had seven miscarriages before I was born. So both as a Jew and as a mother whose pregnancies were all those times not viable, the odds of my even being here are astoundingly low. Where was that bombed out apartment? Was in in Budapest. I was I was born in Pest. Budapest is actually there are two halves two, to the two cities. One is Buda, one is Pest. So I was born in Pest. And I was fed on beer and sardines because that's all that there was around. And maybe that's a good thing because I'm really strong and I'm really healthy. So, so maybe that was fish a, oil. Fish oil is supposed to be very good for you. Maybe that was a good start in life. My parents were both in concentration camps. And there's a whole long story to that, but I don't know whether this is the place to get into that, although it's it's an amazing story. But the bottom line is that even after the war ended, after my mother had been in concentration camp and as had my father, that my mother then ended up in Soviet prison because it was the Soviets who liberated Hungary. She had a fascist neighbor who had first denounced her to the Gestapo for hiding Jews. That's how she ended up in concentration camp. And then after the war, that same neighbor denounced my mother for something. I never found out what. And my mother ended up in, in a Soviet jail. So it became very clear to my parents that if they were going to stay in Hungary, that the persecution just was not going to end. So we escaped Hungary in 1948. Now, once the Iron Curtain dropped, you couldn't travel outside Iron Curtain countries. You could travel within the Iron Curtain countries. So my parents packed up a suitcase as if they were going on vacation to Czechoslovakia. And it was from Czechoslovakia that we escaped to France, which is where I spent my early childhood. And we lived in France for some years, waiting for our papers to allow us to enter the U.S. And the passenger manifest of the ship on which we traveled to the U.S., which was the Ile de France, always gets to me because it lists the names of the passengers on the ship. And then there's a column to the right of that where you have to list nationality. And next to our names, my parents and mine, under nationality, it said stateless. So that's something that has always remained with me. And is one of the things that informed my philanthropic journey. Another thing that has stayed with me is that when we finally were able to enter the U.S., we arrived in McCarthy's America. And having come from a communist country, even though we were here legally, my mother lived in constant fear of being deported. And my father died only a year after we arrived here. So she was a young widow with a young child in a new country with 
almost no family here at all, and certainly no close family. And this being McCarthy's America, public buildings were full of signs that talked about alien registration. And I saw those signs and I always said, that's me, I'm an alien. And that's something that has stayed with me as well, because we too were strangers in Mitzrayim. <laughs> we, we really were. I sympathize with those stories because I have them myself too. But it's interesting that there's kind of at least two potential takeaways from a history of persecution. One is I have to be strong for this never to happen again. And we have to really, you know, defend ourselves from our enemies and sort of a militant attitude of, of sort of self-defense and the cult of strength in a way. And there is another thing, which is, no, we learn from this, the empathy towards those that suffered, towards those that are in the same predicament, uh, refugees, other stateless persons, etc. And, and you kind of, from what I know, you, you, you kind of conjugate both. Like on the one hand, you're a strong supporter of Israel and understand the need to have a strong country so that no Jew is ever stateless. But on the other hand, your main personal learning from your history of displacement and persecution is, is one of big empathy to people that are going through the same issues in this day and age, isn't it? Well, it certainly makes the current refugee crisis something that resonates very deeply with me. But it's also something that informed a second strand of my philanthropic journey. First of all, I wasn't always in a position to do philanthropy, and neither was my mother. I mean, my mother never had any money. Uh, it was always a struggle. And there were so many months we had no idea whether she would be able to pay the rent. It was a pretty terrifying way to grow up. But she never missed making her rounds for the National Council of Jewish Women, you know, going door to door, collecting for the National Council of Jewish Women. And I would do that with her. And I guess that was my first experience with philanthropy. It's what my son would call human capital, I guess. When you can't put in the money capital, there's the human capital or alternate currencies. Is that the expression that he uses? I think both of them are, are really appropriate. What it is, is actually kindness and compassion and menschlichkeit in a way. I would say that there are three main areas uh, in which I focus my philanthropy. One is conflict resolution. The second is intergroup relations. And the third is something quite different. It's preparing doctoral students for careers outside the academy. And that, too, comes from my own experience, because I have a Ph.D. in sociology. And of course, the way Ph.D. programs work is that you are being prepared for teaching positions. But we lie to students when we tell them that there are teaching positions out there because there aren't. There aren't anywhere near enough for the Ph.D.s that are produced. And yet the toolkit that you come out of a PhD program with 
is so useful in so many areas. And yes, I went the standard route for seven years and I became an academic sociologist, but I was never happy in the ivory tower. I always needed to get behind the headlines and go where the action is. And that may be why part of my career was spent as a broadcast journalist. I didn't know that. So, yeah, I was a network correspondent for NBC News. I hosted a program uh, that Walter Cronkite produced. I did stories for the NewsHour for 60 Minutes for 2020. Uh, I was a commentator on Fox, except back then it was Metro Media. Uh, I was a commentator on um, WNET. So these, these three areas... And and there is another element that you were you were very active in that before even became uh, an issue was was the issue of gender violence, right? You were a force behind the creation of the, the sex crimes unit at the NYPD. Or? Yes, that's that's actually a very funny story. Very early in my career, in fact, before I finished my PhD, I was invited to join a group called the Women's Advocacy Committee. And this was a committee made up of only 12 women, but 12 extraordinarily high power women, including Betty Friedan, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Ellie Guggenheimer, Carol Greitzer, Ronnie Eldridge. And I never could understand why they would bring in somebody like me who was nobody and had achieved nothing <laughs> as of that time in her life. And almost through a process of drawing straws, I and another and a colleague of mine ended up doing work for the New York City Police Department. And one of the first things that we did, because our job was to look at the look at women as victims, criminals, and colleagues, because at that time, there were very few women in policing and the women that were there were only permitted to do matron duty and secretarial duty. So, of course, women could never advance without the experience of being on patrol. So we helped train the first policewoman to go on patrol. But what we did early on was we lobbied the police commissioner to set up a sex crimes unit so that you could have it staffed with specially trained police officers and detectives who knew how to deal with victims of these crimes. Fast forward many years later, we were at a fundraiser for the Big Apple Circus. And one of the items that was on auction was a day on the set of Law & Order SVU. And I made the winning bid on that because Joshua and I both loved that program. Joshua is my son. So I wanted to make sure I won that so we could spend that day on the set with them. And we did. So during one of the breaks in shooting, when we were just chatting with Christopher Maloney and Maritza Hargitay, I told them that they happened to be looking at the person who was responsible for the unit that has that gave them this long 20 plus year franchise that they had <laughs> you, should, you should get the royalties <laughs> no afraid not 
so part of the conflict resolution work that you do that is really fascinating is it's linked to interface dialogue and you know you're you're the founder of the Tandeban Center and a long-term leader of that how that came about I founded the Tannenbaum Center in 1992, which is the year that my late husband, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, died. And um, he died seven weeks before our only child was born. So he left me with this wonderful son. But he also left me very deeply inspired by his own work, because he was one of the pioneers in the whole field of interreligious relations and also a world-renowned human rights activist with a special commitment to refugees. So after he died, I got a call from Sir Sigmund Sternberg from London, and Siggy was then chairman of the International Council of Christians and Jews, and he said, you know, we really must do something to continue Mark's work and we have to do it soon because people forget. Well, there I was in my eighth month of pregnancy. I had just lost the person who up until then was the love of my life. And I was absolutely <laughs> not in any state of mind to be thinking about starting an organization or whatever this thing was going to be that we did. But then after a few weeks, I had what can only be described as an epiphany, which is a strange term for a nice Jewish girl to be using. But suddenly it was like a thunderbolt. And I just decided that nothing that I had been doing professionally was as important as building on Mark's work. And I had had a very interesting, very diverse career, but I decided that I was going to devote the rest of my professional life to building on that work. Because at the time that he died, there were more than 50 conflicts being waged around the world that were based at least in part on religion. And at that time, there were 40 million displaced persons as a result of these conflicts and untold number of deaths, dispossession. Today, there are 75 million displaced persons. So it seemed to me that there was a tremendous need to build on this work. And you mentioned the term interreligious dialogue before. I'm not very much into interreligious dialogue because although it's very, very important and it's individually transformative, it very rarely has any impact outside the four walls in which it's taking place. So what I'm interested in is the output of dialogue and how do you operationalize it and how do you meet people where they are and create change, real change, outside of those four walls where dialogue is taking place. So give me a, an example of that. Yeah, so as a result of that, the, the Tannenbaum Center is focused on four areas in which we design change, usually working through institutions. The first one is education. 
teacher training, because by training teachers, you are reaching millions of students. A multiplying effect. Yeah. Yep. We develop curriculum for the mostly through the early grades, because at the time that we started creating our educational materials, nobody was focusing on the early grades. You know, you had wonderful programs out there like the ADLs program and Facing History as ourselves for high school students. But attitudes are being formed in the primary grades. So that's where we were focusing. And then later, we also created high school and college level programs on conflict resolution coming out of our peacemakers in action program. So that's the second area where we focus the role of religion in conflict resolution, because we see the possibilities of religion being part of the solution to conflict instead of it always being the cause of conflict. And the particular way that we address that is through peacemakers in action. We have a worldwide network of religiously motivated individuals who are operating in areas of armed conflict. They are now a formal network. They do cross-border work. And we also create case studies for each of them, which have been published two volumes so far by Cambridge University Press. And the importance of that is that we think this has to be part of the training of diplomats. They need to know how to work with religious actors because religion has been the neglected dimension of statecraft at our peril because we don't understand that dimension in our international relations. And also those who are being trained for the religious life, rabbis, etc., they need to understand how to do conflict resolution. That should be part of their training so that they can be peacemaker practitioners. And they also need to understand how it is that religion-based conflicts come about. So we were the first ones to do case studies of individuals. One of the things that informs my philanthropy is that I always try to identify where are the gaps? Where is there something different that we can be doing that everybody else isn't doing? What is a different way to approach this particular problem? So everything that we've done at the Tannenbaum Center has been based on where the gaps are in the work being done. In terms of education, the gap was the primary grades. In terms of uh, conflict resolution, it was the role of the individual in conflict transformation. Then in terms of health care, which is the third area on which we focus, it was the religious dimension of patient-centered care. Because given the increasing diversity of the provider and the increasing diversity of patients, you had these tremendous cultural gaps which impacted medical outcomes. So we literally wrote the manual, literally, on religio-cultural competency in medical care. And then finally, our Peacemakers in Action program, 
which is related to conflict resolution. That is not finally. That is that is our vehicle for doing the conflict resolution work. But finally, the religious dimension of diversity in the workplace, which nobody was addressing, even in the light of these enormous demographic changes taking place. And we were literally the pioneers in terms of addressing that dimension of workplace diversity. Every other dimension was already being addressed. So in any philanthropy that I do, I'm always looking for where are the gaps And how can we approach this from a different angle that doesn't duplicate what everybody else is doing? And perhaps that was nowhere more evident than in the work that we've been doing related to the Syrian crisis. Right, because there you're talking about a crisis of magnitude that is staggering. And maybe you can share with us some figures there. I think it's a crisis, probably the biggest crisis in World War II in terms of displaced person and and things like that. And you wonder... Can philanthropy do something about it? Or is it too big for philanthropy to tackle? And then how do you go about finding the areas in which you can make the difference? So again, it's looking at the gaps. Now, the Syrian crisis, as you rightly said, it's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Of those 75 million displaced persons I mentioned earlier, a full 25% are Syrians. Literally 50% of the Syrian population has been displaced. 80% of the country is now in poverty. The education and medical infrastructure have been destroyed. 500,000 have been killed internally. And in looking at this problem, again, one of my guiding principles in terms of philanthropy is don't look at the big picture because the big picture is just going to leave you paralyzed in terms of figuring out, well, how can I possibly do anything to help this situation? You have to find the doable pieces and then focus very narrowly on the doable pieces. So in the case of how we approach this, um, I founded an organization called the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees. I'm very guilty, by the way, of Mongo. I'm one of those philanthropists who make your own NGO, which is something we're not supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) Unless we need to, right? That's what I tend to do. We saw Israel as a very important asset in terms of the Syrian crisis. And by the way, before I get into this, I have to say that I don't think we would have been able to get off the ground without JFN. JFN deserves a huge amount of credit because where this began was at a JFN retreat. During one of the lunch breaks, a few of my colleagues and I were sitting at lunch. So sitting at the table were Linda Mills, Charlene Seidel, I think Dorothy Tannenbaum, And we were having lunch and I said, you know, I have an idea. I think that Israel is uniquely positioned to proactively respond to the Syrian crisis. And not only will it be doing very important humanitarian work, but this is an extraordinary opportunity to build bridges. That's where it began. I just said, you know, I have this idea. 
So I want to acknowledge emphatically how important <laughs> JFN has been, not only because of the financial support that JFN members have given, but also the programs that JFN has created around this issue to raise awareness of it and to develop interest in it. So whatever good stuff has happened because of this, whatever awards I have gotten because of doing this work, they really also belong to JFN. What is the unique way in which the MFA tries to make a difference in this crisis? So there are several ways. Number one, we were the only ones who were willing to make Israel a centerpiece of this. It took a few years because all of the briefings that we did, we always said, you know, Israel shares a border with the four most impacted countries And Israel is uniquely positioned in terms of search and rescue experience, in terms of its agriculture, in terms of its technology, in terms of its medical infrastructure. It's uniquely respond to help its experience with trauma counseling. So the first person I went to after the JFN conference was Ido Aharoni. And I told him, Ido, I see a great opportunity here for Israel. He got it immediately because, you know, he is now the brand management person for Israel. So he understands branding. And he said, great, let's explore this. So then I went to George Rupp, who was then president of the International Rescue Committee. And I told him that I think this would be great. I, IRC had a lot of boots on the ground in Jordan, and we were initially focusing on Jordan for a lot of reasons, including the importance of Jordan's stability in the region. And it was becoming destabilized because of the Syrian refugees that it, that it was hosting. And so I then arranged a meeting between George Rupp and, uh, and Edo, And they agreed that they would do a pilot program in which Israeli trauma specialists would work through IRC in terms of providing aid. Two weeks later, I got a call from George and he said, Georgette, I've heard from our people on the ground in Jordan, and they said if the IRC is in any way seen as partnering with Israel, our lives are in danger. So there I was with egg all over my face. My brilliant idea was a no-go. So then I said, okay, if this can't be an Israeli response, then maybe it should be a Jewish communal response because I wasn't seeing any Jewish communal response to this horrendous catastrophe. So I was in Jerusalem. Alan Gill happened to be there at the same time. And I sat with Alan in the lobby of the King David Hotel. Alan was the CEO of the JDC back then. That's right. So lobby of the King David Hotel, where else? And I said, Alan, I'm not seeing a Jewish response to this. How do Jews not respond? He said, you know, you're absolutely right. And I'm going to get right on it. So 
He then got approval to set up the Jewish Coalition for Syrian Refugees, and 16 Jewish organizations became a part of that. And then working with Prince Zaid, he was at that time the permanent representative of Jordan to the UN, we then scaled this up to a multi-faith initiative. And that's how the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees were born. But that Jewish coalition remained at the core of it. Well, today, The Multi-Faith Alliance has more than 100 organizations that are part of it, JFN being one of those. And uh, that makes me very happy and proud. Proudly so, yeah. So how did we identify what's doable? And how did we identify areas that everybody else wasn't doing? Number one, this was the interfaith, multi-faith response. And that was very important on the Hill, as a matter of fact, because part of our work is advocacy work. And whenever they hear about this multi-faith dimension, that grabs them because it gives them cover. They need the cover of religious leaders. In terms of humanitarian work, we focus on hard to access areas that a lot of other organizations can't get into. We don't work with the UN, so we don't have the restrictions that the UN has. It means we can go into areas that the UN can't. But for several years, the most unique thing we did was partner with the IDF to deliver massive amounts of humanitarian aid directly into Southwest Syria. Now, Southwest Syria was very difficult to access because it's entirely surrounded by regime-held areas. And then in one little corner, you've got Al-Qaeda. But it's not hard to access over the Golan Heights. It's very easy to access over the Golan Heights. Just across the border, just across the fence. That's right. And so the very first organizations to take advantage of this new channel were Syrian organizations. So this is a real man bites dog story because here you would have cargo containers with the logos of Syrian organizations arriving in Haifa or Ashdod. The IDF would pick up the containers from port, transship them to the Golan Heights, and then under the cover of darkness, open the fence so that the Syrians, our Syrian partners on the ground could come and take the goods and distribute them in Southwest Syria. This was an area with a population of a million and a half people. And the IDF and the Syrians technically never came in contact with each other. We did a lot of lobbying for this to become policy. Now, whether it becoming policy had anything to do with our lobbying or not, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. What matters is that it happened, that the Israeli government announced Operation Good Neighbor. So when they announced that policy in September 2016, General Yoav Pauli Mordechai, known as Pauli, who was the general uh, in, in charge oh God, of Ogaf, So he came to New York for the UN Security Council meetings in order to find partners to work with Israel on Operation Good Neighbor. 
what we had been lobbying for wherever we did briefings in the Canadian Parliament, the European Parliament, Congress, was use Israel as a staging area for the outbound delivery of international humanitarian aid. But there were no takers. And when Pauli came to New York, there were no takers either. It happened that his meeting with me was his last meeting before returning to Israel. And within five minutes, I had him on the phone with Syrians. And uh, there were a number of potential partners. Not all of them came through, but others did. And so we became the IDF's biggest partner in terms of Operation Good Neighbor. Our distribution penetrated far beyond what the IDF's initial vision was. They were looking at the, is it 40 or 80 villages along the border where they wanted to deliver aid. But we penetrated much deeper than that, beyond Dara, as I mentioned earlier, to an area with a population of one and a half million people and helped to stabilize an entire region. And how did it get stabilized? It got stabilized because we worked through local councils. We helped support three medical facilities and a bakery that produced 15,000 pitas a day. This meant that people's basic needs were taken care of. So the extremists couldn't take hold because how do they all take hold? By providing services that nobody else does. Well, there's a vacuum in services, they step Exactly, in. so yeah. that's Hamas, Al-Qaeda. They all do the same, yeah. All of them that way. And this was supporting a rudimentary economy as well and some self-sufficiency, which is the highest form of sadaka. So that lasted until 2018, because in 2018, with the agreement of Israel, by the way, there was a massive incursion of the regime and its allies, Russian and Iranian allies, to take that region and come right up to the Israeli border. And the deal for Israel was that, okay, you can come up to the border and we will shut down the Golan Channel, but what you have to do is keep Iran away from us. And of course that didn't happen, but what did happen was that Israel was able to bomb with impunity any positions where Hezbollah was growing and, yeah. and where weapons were being transported. So it was a bit of a devil's bargain. But for those two years, it was extraordinary what got done. But as soon as that happened, that did not stop us. We just expanded our delivery areas to northeast Syria, northwest Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. But we are still keeping Israel engaged because those partnerships that were formed were so valuable in terms of planting seeds for the future stability in the area. So, for yeah. example, we're working with WaterGen to bring these water, you know what WaterGen does, they literally pull humidity out of the air and turn it into water. Uh, and we have um, Giddy Grinstein, his organization, Tikkun Olam makers that have sent face shields into Syria. So wherever we can still keep the Israeli stuff going, we're doing that. So you have you have a full generation of Syrians uh, in some parts of the country that grew up 
receiving their only meals <laughs> from Israel, drinking water produced by an Israeli startup, funded by Jewish philanthropists in this case. I think it's the, the Kirsch family foundation that is. So Kirsch is one of our funders, yeah. but Lishtag was and Lishtag and the Arno family. Oh. There are a number of them, but I, I want to correct one thing. What we delivered was transshipped through Israel. It didn't come from Israel. But people still know that yes. in Syria, they still know that in their hour of need, an enemy country, quote unquote, stepped in and helped them when their allies, in many cases, did not. And, and that has to have a positive impact in the future, I think, in terms of, of how these people that were brainwashed, if you want, for decades to believe that Israel was pure evil. So now all of a sudden, they all may know somebody got treated in Israel as, you know, 5,000. 5,000 people got treated in Israel. Yeah. Israel used its unique location to transfer health. There has to be some positive impact down the line, one would hope, well, of all this work, right? And, I mean, and not, it, that, not that you do it for that. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But it has this byproduct of, of creating those bridges, the building those bridges for the future. And it's evident because the point at which our Syrian partners decided to go public about their work with Israelis. A story, a 45-minute interview was done with three of them on Orient TV. And Al Jazeera picked up the story and bashed these three Syrians as traitors and whatever. And the responses on Al Jazeera's Facebook page, it's amazing, 99% bashed Al Jazeera for bashing these Syrians with comments like, why are you uh, attacking them? Because, you know, the Israelis are the only ones who are helping us. And so it's astounding, you know, if you, right. if you translate the Arabic, which I can't, but I, I count on my, my Syrian colleagues to do that. You know, the response was overwhelmingly positive. And, and the engagement with actors in the Gulf, you know, our friend yeah. uh, Ghassan Aboud and, yes. and mm -hmm. another very prominent people in the Gulf, like way before the uh, Abraham Accords. But that's another area in which you're very active, right, in creating those bridges with the Arab world. And actually, you know, something that we did together at JFN with the Arab population of Israel. Yes. So that falls under the intergroup relations as well as the conflict resolution heading, because I think it's extraordinarily important to engage with the Arab world and um, not in terms of dialogue. There's plenty of dialogue that goes on, and I'm not sure it's led to anything much. But in terms of tachlis, and that's something else that I guess is one of the principles of my philanthropy, is bring people together around a common project, which has a beginning, a middle, an end, clearly defined results, because by working together, that's when stuff really happens. And I think we see that in terms of what's happened after the Abraham Accords, that there are so many ways in which Israelis and Arabs are trying to make business deals and so on. I've made a lot of introductions to Israelis uh, 
for uh, the Ghassan Aboud group. He's very eager to work with Israelis and, and so many others are as well. And of course, the work of the Arab Council for Regional Integration and JFN also did a program highlighting their work. This is extraordinarily important. Just for the listeners, with the, the Arab Council for Regional Integration is a group of Arab influencers, uh, broadly understood. We have people from media, people from art, academia, policy even, that are advocating against BDS and actually for a broader integration with Israel and in the region. Yes, it goes far beyond BDS to full integration in the region. Uh, right. They're looking at, at curriculum and getting the incitement out of curriculum. They are. And the beauty of it is that they phrase it in purely self-serving terms. They say, we need Israel. And they also break that taboo. It's not that you care less about the Palestinians. The two things are not necessarily related. You don't help the Palestinians by having Israel isolated, rather the opposite. By Israel being more integrated in the region, that opens possibilities for a more just solution of the Palestinian conflict. That's exactly right. And even though the Palestinians understandably feel abandoned as a result of these kinds of activities. In fact, the Arab players will have more leverage over Israel as a result of this kind of economic, cultural, and educational integration. But they're doing the very important work of preparing the people. And that's what was missing in the peace agreements between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. There was absolutely no preparation for the people. And so there is absolutely no integration, a tremendous amount of cooperation at the government level, but not at the street level. And so the work that the Arab Council for Regional Integration is doing is that work at the people to people level. And that's what will make the Abraham Accords I wish people would stop referring to them as peace agreements. They're not. These countries have never been at war with Israel. They are normalization agreements. Uh, and that's what will make them succeed, the kind of work that the Arab Council is doing. So you mentioned a little bit about how your upbringing and your history shaped the areas in which you do philanthropy. But is there something in the way you do philanthropy that was shaped by your experience of displacement, hardship, not growing up with means? Do you think you, you do philanthropy differently than somebody that, let's say, second or third generation of a philanthropic family? That's an interesting question, and I've never thought about it. Maybe it makes me a little bit less cynical, because I think by the time you are in the second and third generation of wealth, you are so fed up with being hit upon all the time <laughs> that you become much more defensive. And I'm still at that stage where I feel so guilty about having wealth that I'm much more vulnerable to being put <laughs> upon because, you know, I, I compare myself to my parents' situation and 
And this is really what keeps me humble because my entire life I have asked myself, had I been confronted with the world in which my parents lived and what they had to endure, would I have been able to survive that? Would I have had the resourcefulness to build new lives, not just one new life, but new lives? And I really don't know if I would have. It keeps you grounded in, in very it deep ways. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you humble. And it keeps me guilty. My mother never caught a break. She was an extraordinarily educated, cultured, hugely talented person who never caught a break because of the circumstances into which she was born and in which she grew up. And I feel as if I have caught all the breaks. What have I done to deserve that? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I never liked the idea of guilt, uh, but the idea of, of empathy with the ones that are now in a situation similar to the ones you've been with. I mean, you know what it feels to be displaced. You know what it, you know what it feels to not knowing where, how the rent is going to be paid. And that has to give you a dimensional connection with the people you're trying to help. That is very helpful in terms of making you a better philanthropist. I think one of the biggest problems I see in philanthropy is that there's a very big chasm between the grant makers and the grantees, not because of their intentions that they're laudable, is because of they don't have the life experiences. And one of the big growing fields in philanthropy now is the field of lived experiences, like people that can really relate to what the grantees are going through. And I think that has to have a very positive impact. It certainly does, but don't discount the guilt. And I don't <laughs> feel guilt, but I also inflict guilt. In fact, <laughs> I used to tease my son and say, I'm the East Coast distributor of guilt. He said, no, you're the worldwide distributor of guilt. <laughs> so... What does the future bring in terms of philanthropy, in terms of like you have a book coming up about the Syrian project, but what are the new projects, the new passions that are animating you now? Uh, I don't have new passions. I'm still very passionate about my old passions. <laughs> so uh, I, I plan to stick with my three basics for a good long time to come because there are plenty of things to do within those. I plan to stick with the Syrian humanitarian crisis and intergroup relations, especially interreligious relations. And um, I'm still very interested in PhDs outside the academy because so, I have so always been a sociologist in action, working in non-academic settings once I escaped the academy. So what are the new frontiers in these three areas? In other words, what is going to be the new focus of the work with refugees? I mean, the crisis continues. The world has forgotten about it, you know, unfortunately, but it continues. So what is, what is the next challenge there? What is the next challenge in terms of intergroup relations? And what is the next challenge in terms of incorporating academics into nor quote unquote normal life? Yeah. So let me start with the last one, because where I used to be a rather lone voice in terms of advocating and creating programs to prepare 
doctoral students for work outside the academy, there are programs that have now sprung up all over the place. There is a wide recognition that this needs to be a critical area in the preparation of PhDs. So that has opened up tremendously. In terms of intergroup relations, what my focus has been recently, and this has really been in, triggered by the publication of my late husband's biography, and um, JFN has also done a program around that, for which I'm grateful. And the title of that biography is Confronting Hate. And it's confronting hate, the untold story of the rabbi who stood up for human rights, racial equity, and religious reconciliation. So I've been doing a tremendous amount of speaking on the subject of confronting hate. And I've been doing a deep dive into what are the ways in which we can confront hate, because this is certainly a huge issue these days. So that's my current and next frontier there. In fact, the new book on which I'm working, and I have an October deadline for that, is a book on religious side, which goes very deep into issues around hate. And in terms of refugees, I think refugee admissions have slowed up so much that we really have to find ways to reach people where they are, aid in place, because the odds of their being resettled or being able to return to their countries, the average time of displacement is 17 years. That's average. It's often much more than that. So the odds of their returning home or being resettled are very, very slim. So it's hugely important that we provide a meaningful existence where they are, because one of the reasons they're not being resettled is fear of terrorism. And by virtue of that, we're creating the very condition that we fear the most, because the longer people remain in limbo, the more vulnerable they are to radicalization. So we have to find ways to provide a meaningful existence to the people who are living in the circumstances that they're living in. So that's what I see as the new frontiers. And that's where there's an intersection with the work that Joshua, your son does in terms of impact investing, because yes. many of the impact investing endeavors can actually provide work and livelihood for those refugees. It's a nice connection there. So from a bombed out apartment in <laughs> Budapest to uh, being a world advocate for Syrian refugees and speaking to the UN and to the Vatican, uh, it's quite a journey and a journey that we've been uh, privileged to share and to be sharing with you. And uh, as we move on to the, to the new frontiers in these evergreen issues of uh, bringing more good into the world. So thank you. And thank you to you, Andres, and to JFN for having been such a great source of support and for being so interested in these things that I'm interested in. You've been wonderful partners with which to share the work, and I'm deeply grateful. Um, is your vision, and we're just happy to go along. Thank you. 
thanks so much to Georgette Bennett. Her book, Thou Shall Not Stand Idly By, distributed by Simon & Schuster, is available on Amazon and other major booksellers. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote from former First Lady Barbara Bush, who said, Giving frees us from the familiar territory of our own needs by opening our mind to the unexplained worlds occupied by the needs of others. So keep thinking about the needs of others, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.